Hey, welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast. Episode 104 from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine. Rich Kimball and Carrie Haskell here. This is where we do our daily program, Downtown, Monday through Friday, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Zone Radio stations of Maine, streaming audio all over the world at downtownwithrichkimball.com. We are brought to you each week by Cross Insurance where security meets strength. Well, we talk a little music on this week's edition of the podcast. Two talented performers, both Canadian, and uh, both who have had hits over the course of many, many years in the business. Uh, A little bit later on, Andy Kim, who scored big in the 1970s with Rock Me Gently, but it had earlier hits uh, that he wrote and hits for others, including the biggest song of 1969 that he uh, co-wrote as well. But first up, one of the most recognizable voices in all of pop and rock music history as the longtime lead vocalist of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Their unique sound took the music world by storm in the late 60s and early 70s. David Clayton Thomas has gone on to record more than a dozen solo albums, including his brand new one, Say Something. We had a great time talking with him about the making of the album, being a musician in quarantine, and his long career in the music business. Here's David Clayton Thomas on Downtown, the podcast. Hi, Rich. Good to be here. Man, I love the new album so much. And, uh, well, I'll, let's say, you you don't pull any punches on this one. Well, we, we decided to make the record say something, and it does. It sure does, yeah. King Midas, uh, Dear Mr. Obama is a terrific cut. And uh, I think my favorite one because... Well, it sums it all up. Uh, the circus is about as apt a tune as you'll get for what we're experiencing these days. Yeah, that's getting a lot of airplay down here in Toronto. Where are you calling from? Uh, we're in Bangor, Maine. Oh, yeah. Lovely place. I've been up through there many times. Well, this is not a new thing for you. Uh, you have always, uh, in your music, spoken about what's going on in the world. A uh, Part of that, I have to assume, goes back to your, your Greenwich Village days and your love of the music of Bob Dylan. Absolutely. Dylan was a huge influence. And and Dylan, I, I heard in the coffee shops, you know, in the 60s, and he was singing the same things in his music that we were talking about over the in the coffee shops. And in those days, it was very political, of course. It was uh, the Vietnam War, and it was uh, kids being drafted. And, you know, it was a, a whole revolution around. Uh, and, and the music was coming out of New York in those days. You're an East Coaster, you could appreciate this. When the music was headquartered in New York, it was potent. It was very powerful. It moved out to L.A. in the mid-'70s, and it became uh, background music for a dance video, basically. Mm. Well, and so we've tried to go back to that kind of ethic where the music actually could say something to a generation. Well, And I wanted to ask you about that because, again, so much of what passes for popular music today is is product uh, and, and certainly there's nothing wrong with selling a lot of records but how important is it for artists who are given this platform to say something well it's all we've got left of course nobody's selling records anymore nobody but nobody uh we've been spotified out of existence and of course spotify is not paying the artists so that's one uh, stream of income gone Now, of course, with this uh, pandemic, they've taken our concerts away. So I'm in a community here of uh, Toronto with uh, some incredibly creative musicians. They're all out of work right now. 
So all we've got left really is our voices, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, your your story is a fascinating one. You've written about it. You've spoken about it before. But I mean, your your childhood was in many ways uh, right out of Charles Dickens. What you went through. <laughs> well, that's a nice way of putting it. Why did Charles Dickens get beat up when he was a kid? <laughs> well, there were some rough patches along the way there. <laughs> Well, and you sing about it on the new album, too. Uh, your song about your time at the Bur uh, Burwash Industrial Farm is incredibly powerful. Yeah, they were playing that on Jazz FM last night. And this jockey phoned me up and said, put it on Jazz FM right now. And they were playing it on Jazz FM. They like it a lot, which is funny because it's not a jazz song at all. How did you come to the attention of Ronnie Hawkins? Uh, you know, when I first uh, hit Toronto, we had a... I think we called the Strip here in Toronto, and it was a, a a string of bars that went maybe 20 blocks up the middle of Toronto on Young Street, and uh, there was perhaps 20 different nightclubs to work in, and the king of the Strip was Ronnie Hawkins. Ronnie was at a place called La Coq d'Or, which was right in the middle of the Strip, and in the afternoons they would have matinees. The matinees, they didn't serve liquor, so kids could come in. So all the young wannabe musicians would show up waiting to see Robbie and Levon, you know. And uh, because it was the Hawks, later to become the band. And uh, they were our heroes. And I just kept bugging Ronnie, let, let me get up and sing a song. And he did, and he offered me a job. And that was my first paying gig. And am I right that it was an appearance on the old uh, television series Hullabaloo that, that gave you the, the taste of New York City and made you want to move there? Oh, absolutely. And it lasted for 40 years. Uh, we went down to play with, uh, on Hullabaloo. We had a number one hit record in Canada, which got us a shot on Hullabaloo uh, on NBC in the States, hosted by Paul Anka. And I had three days there while we were filming the show, and I hung out in Greenwich Village a lot. And in those days, the entire music industry was headquartered in Greenwich Village, mm. eight square blocks of downtown Manhattan. You could walk down the street on a Saturday night, and Carol King's playing here, James Taylor's over here, and Jimi Hendrix is over here. You know, it was so vital. It was so incredibly creative. I couldn't wait to get back to it. When I did get back to it, um, about a year later, um, I basically stayed out of work for about a year playing the basket houses in New York. And uh, that's where I met the guys in Blood, Sweat, and Tears. They're all playing the same little clubs in Greenwich Village. And, and so you knew them a little bit, but was it Judy Collins that, that really pushed to get you together with the group after Al Cooper had left? Well, I don't know. That's, that's a rumor that's come down through history. <laughs> uh, I knew these guys anyway, and one night Bobby Columbia came in, and yes, Judy Collins was with him and Jim Fielder, the bass player, and Steve Katz, the guitar player. Uh, but they all knew me. They, we'd all played gigs around the, 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 the village. It wasn't like uh, Judy said, oh, I got the singer I want you to hear. You know, they all knew me anyway. And we hung out for a while, and uh, I didn't think much more of it. And a few weeks later, I had gone back to Toronto because they didn't have a visa, and uh, I was invited to leave. <laughs> I went back to Toronto, and Bobby Columbia called me. And I knew about the, the band Blood, Sweat, and Tears. They played upstairs for me uh, in a club I played in the, in the village. And he said, well, uh, the band broke up. Al Cooper's gone. 
and he took half the band with him, and we've got four guys and a recording contract left. You want to come down and sing with us? I said, you bet. I was on a plane in an hour. I was <laughs> you bet I do. So I came down to New York and uh, went right back to Greenwich Village, and we got a little loft up above the Cafe Agogo on Bleecker Street and started rehearsing and putting a new band together. We had Al Cooper on the show a couple of years ago, and he, he's a very interesting guy. And you, You've never had anything negative to say about him, but, but what you brought to the band was, first of all, those lead vocalist chops, but also that blues and jazz sensibility. Well, vocal style was the main bone of contention with Cooper and the band. These guys were jazz musicians. Uh, half of them had, had master's degrees. They came out of Juilliard and right. Manhattan and Eastman. And their idea of, they grew up with singers like Tony Bennett and Ray Charles and Aretha, you know, singers, real singers. And they had a problem with Al. Al was more of a, a rock singer. Uh, never had any problems with Al. I, I basically, I've been asking, a, answering questions about Al Cooper my whole <laughs> life, but I don't know him. <laughs> he was gone when I got there, so uh, never really met him that much. But I understand that uh, the band wanted a real singer, and uh, a lot of people were in line for the gig. They talked to Laura Nero about it. Steve Stills was considered, and uh, I ended up with a gig. So. And, and Cooper basically said, I'm going to be the lead singer, or I leave, leave and then the band said, okay, bye-bye. <laughs> that was it. And you guys were really, I, I think back in the late 60s, early 70s, to me, you were the quintessential New York band. You represented so much of what the city was about. Absolutely. I'm glad you picked up on that, and I've said it myself many times. People ask about the sound of Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Oh, it was the horns. Oh, it was the jazz rock. It was a combination of the... No, no, no. It was New York City. That's what that band sounded like. The guys that played in that band, not only uh, most of them were graduates of, uh, like I said, Juilliard and Eastman and Manhattan School of Music, but uh, a New York working musician, he would play a Broadway show in the afternoon, uh, go and play Latin music in Spanish Harlem, on the weekends, and at night go and play jazz in the in the village. Mm. In the village, you know, they could play anything and everything. And the sound of the city. The first time I heard this band play, I basically said, "This is not a West Coast band. This is not L.A. with its surfer surfer roots." <laughs> you know what I mean? This is right off the streets of New York. Hard charging. Uh, you could hear Broadway in it. You could you could hear Lincoln Center. You could hear the Village Vanguard. It was all there. It was it was New York. Well, you guys were doing well over two hundred shows a year. That had to wear. Like for the musicians, uh, yeah, they can do that because you said many of them might play different gigs in a day. But for the lead vocalist, boy, that had to be wearing. Well, yeah, you know, the only thing comparable, of course, is the lead trumpet player. And, and the lead trumpet book uh, in the Blood, Sweat, and Tears was created by Lou Soloff, one of the greatest lead trumpet players ever to live. The late Lou Soloff, my buddy. Um, and But if Lou's lip went out, and it, it, it did, because it's punishing to play lead trumpet, right. hitting high Gs in a stadium, you know what I mean? Mm. And we didn't have the kind of sound systems and ear monitors and stuff that we have today. 
Well, if the lip went out, Lily sent in a sub for a couple of nights. Lou had a sub. Everybody in the band had a sub except me. <laughs> you know, if my voice went out, I either had to go on or we canceled the date. Well, you have been incredibly productive as a solo artist as well. But basically, for more than a dozen years or so, you've been you've been putting together a new solo album just about once a year. Pretty much. I, uh, you know, I was one of the frustrations, and over the years, Blood, Sweat, and Tears was very, very good to me. I made a bunch of money, and I put my kids through college, and had a nice home, and everything out, nice car. But it had turned into a touring band. It had turned into basically a tribute band. The original guys were all gone, and they hadn't been in a recording studio in 30 years. There was no interest. You know, they were turning out millions of dollars a year on the road, and that's where it, that's what it became. And there was no interest either in the management or in the band or anybody to make new music. Uh, me, I'm a songwriter, and if I can't write, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go off the wall. I mean, that's what I do. So once I left, it finally made up my mind in about 2004 that I was going to leave. I gave my notice and I played out about a year of contracts that still had to be played. As soon as I moved up here, I went right in the studio because I had a ton of music that I wanted to record. And I recorded three albums in the first three years, all new original material. Well, it's it's terrific music. The new album, Say Something, I think it's some of the best work of your career, both as a songwriter uh, and as a vocalist here. It's really terrific stuff. And we That was a fun record to make, too, you know, because you kind of just get to sit back and snipe at things that really <laughs> piss you off. <laughs> and did you bring in, uh, basically, you brought in your guys that, that play with you on the road to work on the recording, right? Well, more than that, these guys are my lifetime friends. Lou Pamonte was in Blood, Sweat, and Tears back in the 80s. You know, uh, we've worked together, known each other our, our whole lives. So I know these guys. These are my buddies, guys I hang out with, even if we're not doing a gig. Well, we hope you can uh, get back out there and, and perform live again soon. I have to ask you, uh, so I, I heard an interview you did not too long ago. You bought a new car. Have you had a chance to take it out and use it yet? I, You know what? I just decided I'm going to go out. To, it's going to be a beautiful day here in Toronto tomorrow. And I'm just going to go out for a drive because there's not a lot of traffic out there. And I don't need a destination. I'm just going to point it out on the highway and let her go for a while. <laughs> that sounds like get a great out of the plan. Because, you know, we've been pretty much locked down here for the last month. All of our gigs have been canceled for the year. Uh, of course, nobody's working. Uh, and it's, it's a big shame, really. I, I, I'm hurting for the city of Toronto. We just we have one of the great concert halls in the world here called Massey Hall. Mm. And they just put $50 million into renovating the old lady. And because she's 100 years old or more. And she's due to open this summer, but not now. And I wonder how long it's going to be before you can put 3,000 people sitting shoulder to shoulder in Massey Hall again, yeah. if ever. Well, it's uncertain times for all of us here, but I'll tell you, it, it makes me feel a lot better to hear your music and hear that great voice of yours and hear these songs that uh, speak some important truths. The album is called Say Something. David Clayton Thomas, uh, such a treat for us. Thank you so much for making time for us today. It's my pleasure. You take care now. David Clayton Thomas with us on the podcast. We'll pause for a little break, a word from our friends at Cross Insurance, and come back with singer-songwriter Andy Kim up next. Since its founding in 1954, 
support, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super-regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. downtown the podcast that was the first million seller for andy kim his version of baby i love you not long after that a song that he co-wrote with jeff barry became a huge number one record of the year in 1969 sugar sugar by the archies well great story behind that and his biggest hit as a solo artist a song that nobody wanted and Rock Me Gently, we talked about all of it and more with singer-songwriter Andy Kim. You know what? It, what's greatest to hear the word singer-songwriter? It's something that I dreamt of as a kid. Um, and um, many years later, to it's always a jolt to hear that maybe the dream that was beyond my reality actually did happen. So thank you for having me. <laughs> well, you took control of that dream. At a very early age, how old were you when you uh, you packed your bags and headed from Montreal to New York City to try and make it in the business? Well, I was um, uh, 16 going on 17, but really just because um, in the neighborhood that I grew up, um, there wasn't that much of a, uh, a an American sense of music growing up in Montreal. And it was my transistor radio that um, allowed me to get radio stations in New York and in Buffalo that excited my universe and ex- made me start dreaming. So um, I just went on a dream, not not really knowing what was going to happen. And I was lucky enough to meet the great Jeff Barry, and he became my mentor. Well, yeah, you went right to the Brill Building and, and knocked on doors and introduced yourselves. But but you've said it, there was something about Jeff Barry's songwriting that really appealed to you and, and made you th- you think that would be a good match. What was it about Jeff's work? Well, you know, um, the the first the first song that I that I that I really really um, got excited about and could not really understand how that that sound was made. Uh, again, it wasn't that I was living under a rock, but I grew up in the tenements of Montreal. So there wasn't much going on. I think my, uh, my outside world was, uh, was really my smart transistor radio. Um, you know, a song called be my baby was just, uh, the Ronettes version was just, I was, blown away by it and I didn't understand it. I I loved it, but I didn't understand how that could translate itself onto a transistor radio. Like what was it exactly? And how was that created? And you get to know that all great records are made by um, having someone writing a great song and then uh, 
and then it's in the hands of the gods at that point. Well, you're in good company with your love of, of Be My Baby. That's the song that Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys always points to as his favorite song of all time. I know. I've been lucky enough to uh, to have met Brian a few times, um, and he'll um, he'll comment on my songs, but he'll never mention Be My Baby because I had a version of it myself um, that really was not even close to what the Ronettes did, but, but, you know, Jeff and Ellie being songwriters of that song, um, and got the blessings from Phil Spector. So it was cool. Well, you eventually had uh, your very first hit in early 1968 with how'd we ever get this way. And then a million seller later that year with, with baby, I love you. And I understand when you were, when you were writing and recording, one of the ways you would get a feel for whether a song would sound good on the radio was, is this right by recording on an old Sony cassette tape that gave you that sound of AM radio? You know something? That cassette player um, made my guitar playing sound the best of anybody on this planet. <laughs> and mixed with, with whatever I was singing, there was some kind of EQ frequency that made it all incredible. As a matter of fact, uh, when we were doing Sugar Sugar, uh, the first few takes were just, you know, you're, you've got musicians playing something new and, and you're trying to get into a groove and all of that. And it really kind of wasn't happening in the first half hour. And then um, Jeff and I took a break and I pulled out the, the cassette player and and just just the little demo that we made in, in the office sounded like a record and it's really became part of the blueprint of the final record, you know, and, uh, you, whatever you can get to, to make you, um, to, to inspire you to write a song, you know, um, I think I read somewhere where Barry Gibb got the inspiration to write jive talking, uh, while they were, uh, crossing some kind of bridge that, continued to, to to rattle the, the tires of the car and he got inspired to write jive <laughs> talking so whatever it takes it's in the hands of the gods there i'm you know i defy any songwriter to tell me that you know i wrote that song well yeah but you were inspired by by the songwriting angels to start it you know the craft comes in after the inspiration for me well, and there's got to be some magic involved there because it, and you and Jeff wrote Sugar Sugar in, in what, about 10 minutes? Yeah. <laughs> it was, well, I'll tell you, it was freeing because most of the time when you're asked to write songs, you know, um, wrote songs for uh, Davy and Mickey after uh, the monkeys broke up. And, and so now you've got to tailor make the song to, to their voices, to their range, to their ability to sing a certain way. But the art sheets, you know, you didn't need to call, um, you know, Reggie and, and Betty and <laughs> Veronica and uh, Mr. Andrews to see what they wanted to do. You just told them. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk, Andy, about the role that Don Kirshner played in making Sugar Sugar the, the massive hit that it became? Well, you know, um, uh, Don Kirshner was always known as the man with the golden ear. So... <laughs> Um, he just had a knack for hits. Just when he heard the song, he would 
he would give it the okay to go into the studio. Uh, he had just left the Monkees um, through some form of of uh, misunderstandings, and, uh, and here we are. There's a TV show called The Archie Saturday Morning Animation, and and you know. He loved the song when we played it for him. He loved the record. We put the record out, or RCA put the record out. And here's an interesting stat. Um, May 24th, 1969, Baby I Love You, my version, um, hit the Billboard charts for the first time. May 24th, 1969, same day Sugar Sugar was released, and um, it never reached the charts till the middle of July and then just took off. Nobody wanted to play <laughs> the Archies cause, because at that time, you know, there was a Vietnam War with the hero Woodstock and we were sending a man on the moon and there was uh, Charlie Manson uh, was uh, doing his, his, his ability to disrupt the lives of people and so, and, and radio stations were kind of looking for a little more meaning in their songs. Well, anytime music can make people people smile, particularly under trying times, uh, it's likely to do well. And that song became a huge, huge smash. I didn't know until I was doing a little research that uh, uh, people were coming in and out of the studio, and, and Ray Stevens even played a role in the recording. <laughs> Yeah, Ray Ray came in one night when we were just overdubbing some stuff and then we got to the hand claps and um we just you know, we just uh we used uh, his left hand and his right hand to kinda give us the old Ray Stevens Ahab the Ahab wrong. <laughs> <laughs> We are talking with Andy Kim here on Downtown. You would win your first Juno Award in 1970. And then uh, just a few years later, a song that you wrote that, that, for my money, we played the beginning of it when we started the segment. It is an absolutely perfect song, but nobody wanted to produce or release Rock Me Gently. That's that's hard to imagine today. Well, you know what? Um, I always... I always believe that if you do have a dream and you don't have a plan B in your life, you're going to have to do something to, to really make people believe in what you're doing, whether it's music or whether it's, it's selling some kind of thing that you've invented or whatever. And, and you know, um, I just deep down inside loved the song so much. When no one was around to produce it, I figured I'd produce it. And then when nobody wanted to sign me as an artist, because most people thought I had already had my time, um, there's a great saying in the Brill Building, you're only as good as your last two minutes and 30 seconds. <laughs> and so I guess they they saw the name Amy Kim and, and it wasn't really kind of of interest to them. So, you know, like all good, you know, um, people who have a dream and will not be deterred. I, I started my own record company. I called it ice long before it became a term that, you know, artists use and beer companies use. And, and I became my own promotion man because I really believed in it so much that I, um, well, 
here's the thing. If I wouldn't have done that, I had no options about living a life that I wanted to live. So, you know, six million records later and uh, traveling the world, singing not only that song, but all my hits really kind of um, kind of brought it all home to me that 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 you can't give up. You have to um, you have to own your dream and and never listen to anybody because I never understand that. Um, people will be deterred by the word no. So here I am. I don't know how you started your life, but I'm sure it wasn't easy as well. Well, that song is, is it's one of those great songs that uh, here we are all these years later, and when that comes on the radio, uh, I turn it up, I roll the windows down, I, I want to sing along with it because it's a record that, that only sounds better with time. Well, you know... Um, as someone once said, once you put out a record, it's in the hands of the gods, with a small G. Um, and and you know, I I've, I've been really blessed and and I've lived a life that is was beyond the reality of my dreams. Um, and I think part of it was to to accept the moment, to know that deep down inside you're doing the best you can, and that. Um, uh, this wonderful phrase that I learned when I was in school, God is always on time, not your time. <laughs> it's just his time, magical time. And I've been lucky to be there more often than not. You continue to make a wonderful music. A matter of fact, one of my favorite Andy Kim songs is from your, your last album, It's Decided. I love the song Sail On. Oh my God, I have to tell you, I wrote that lyric in about two minutes. <laughs> and I was in the studio with uh, Kevin, the great Kevin Drew and Ohad, and um, uh, everybody was playing something and was listening and wondering, and then all of a sudden, you know, I just scribbled all of this down, and then I looked at it, and I didn't know what to do with it, so I just showed it to Kevin. And he kind of stared at me. He said, "Okay, okay, we got, to, we got, we got, we got it." So those things just, you know, you have to trust that you're you're doing something that is honest and real to you. You know, I've I've never envied anybody or been jealous of anyone's success. It's never been, oh, I should have gotten that. Oh, I should have done this. No, it's just. It's the path that you take with honesty and love and forgiveness and understanding that it's not always going to go your way. Well, it's got to be rewarding. Well, thank you for loving that song. I appreciate it. Well, it's got to be rewarding as an artist to, to know that uh, your work, your music, your passion continues to bring joy to people for, for many, many years now. I love your work, and it's been a real treat for us to talk with you, Andy. Thank you so much for making time with us, and we, we wish you good health and continued success. Well, I am, an, I am honored after all this time to even uh, share these thoughts with, uh, with you, and, and thank you for being interested in my life. I appreciate it. That is Andy Kim here on Downtown, and a fascinating conversation with him. Interesting and very humble guy. And then both our guests this week, uh, down-to-earth people who have had their success, been, been hit makers, but then settled into perhaps a, a, maybe a, 
I don't want to say an easier life, but a less complicated life of just being just being in the music business and, and making the kind of music they want to make and, and not worrying so much about sales or chart action or anything like that. Yeah, being true to what they as musicians, as songwriters, wanted to do and wanted to be. Yeah. Uh, interesting conversation. Our thanks to both Andy Kim and David Clayton Thomas. And thanks to you for joining us as well. We remind you, the podcast is brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time here on Downtown.